0: Hello and welcome to the Standing for Truth Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Donnie Bedinsky, and together we will venture on a journey to explore the truth of biblical creation. Our ministry is also available on YouTube, so please search Standing for Truth and get access to the video versions of our programs. I'm Donnie Bedinsky, and as usual... Stay awesome, and trust in the truth of God's Word. Welcome to Standing for Truth. I am your host, Donnie, and I want to thank everybody for being here for tonight's epic debate. Tonight we have Professor David McQueen and Jackson Rowe who are here to debate the important topic, the Genesis Flood and uh, Noah's Ark, Fact or Fiction. So obviously a very important topic. So I wanna thank uh, Professor McQueen and Jackson. I wanna thank you guys so much for uh, giving us your time for tonight's important debate.
1: Thanks for having us. You're
2: welcome, uh, Donnie. Thank you, Jackson, for. Uh, joining with me in this
0: discussion.
1: Yep, thank my you. My pleasure.
0: My pleasure. My pleasure. Um, so, I, I want to point out: anybody new to this channel, anybody who's not yet subscribed, but you love debates, interviews, discussions, and and more. We do a ton uh, of. we've got a variety on this channel, then please make sure to hit that subscribe button and share around this content as the the truth is important and critical thinking and healthy dialogue is important as well. So before we get into some introductions, though, I do want to go over uh, a few reminders. We've got some really, really big debates over the next uh, few months. I'm already uh, booking for 2022. Uh, I'm just going to go over a few, as you can see in the upcoming events section, everybody. We've got... uh, a ton of events set. So I'm just going to go over a few here. Uh, we've got a good mix of science, uh, eschatology, soteriology-related debates. Next month, we've got a big one. Uh, is limited aton- atonement biblical? Matt Slick versus Joshua Gibbs, two season debaters. First thing in 2022, first week of January, we've got two big debates. Uh, does the New Testament teach that Jesus is God? Chris Date versus Dr. Shabir Ali. And uh, that same week, on the 7th, a debate on eschatology, pre-tribulation rapture versus post-tribulation rapture, Dr. Kent Hoven and Pastor Andrew Sluter. And at the end of this month, we've got a debate on uh, Bible translations, is the KJV superior to modern versions? Again, two-season debaters, this is definitely going to be a scholarly debate, Uh, Nick Sayers, and Rob Rowe. So that being said, uh, we've already got a great chat and I want to go over the the format for everybody and then we're going to get some introductions from the debaters for the night. So it's going to be a formal debate. We've got uh, 15-minute openings up to 15-minute openings. Whatever's not used as we typically do on this channel, we'll just throw into the audience Q&A. Then we're going to have up to 10-minute rebuttals. And then a roughly 35-minute uh, open discussion where the debaters, uh, Professor McQueen and Jackson, will be asking each other questions. As always, we keep these discussions sophisticated, equally timed, and respectful. Then we're going to have a five-minute closing statement and then an audience Q&A. So this is where we get you guys in the chat involved. Uh, so please make sure you're tagging me with your questions uh, at Standing for Truth. That way I don't miss your your questions. So that being said, enough for me. You guys didn't come here to see me. You came here to see Jackson and Professor McQueen. Why don't we uh, give some brief introductions? Uh, Why don't we start with you, um, Professor McQueen? How you been? A little bit about yourself, a little bit uh, about your background. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, I anticipate that there'll be new people that join our uh, uh, debate tonight. So I am a uh, retired geologist, having worked uh, for the last 50 years on and off uh, in geology full-time and part-time. I'm also a a, a former university professor, having taught at uh, Virginia State University, a geologist there, uh, teaching also on the West Coast, An important part of my background, for those of you that uh, are watching what I'm doing tonight, and that is arguing that the ARC is historical fact, is that uh, from 1983 to 1987, during that four-year period, uh, I worked for the Institute for Creation Research in what it was in California in those days. It's in Dallas now. And so my mentor... Uh, was Dr. Henry Morris, and we'll be talking more about his view of the dimensions of the ark, and then as we go through um, from the arc to the actual flood itself, I'm sure uh, uh, Jackson will have uh, uh, some comments about that. Um, I went to school at the University of Tennessee, undergraduate, University of Michigan graduate school. That's enough about me. Uh, Let me turn it over to Jackson, please.
0: I appreciate that introduction, Professor McQueen. Uh, Most people are familiar with who you are, but anybody that wants to see more from Professor McQueen, uh, for one, check out our website in our uh, About the Team section. You can find uh, kind of biographies, information about all of us on Team Standing for Truth, as well as in the description box, I have... Uh, the playlist from Professor McQueen, all the videos, lectures, presentations, and past debates that he's done with us. So definitely check that out. Also a link to his book uh, where you can find that as well. So uh, Jackson, let's hand it over to you again. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, A little bit about yourself, a little bit about your channel and uh, how you been?
1: I'm doing good. I've uh, been uploading videos again every now and then on my channel, Jackson Rowe, just my name. Used to have a different channel, but uh, got some decent content. Not great production value, and I'm not very charismatic, so I don't have that going for me. But you know, I've been uh, recently uh, hiring some guides all over the world, unrelated to this, to uh, go out and look for endangered or thought to be extinct uh, species, and I've actually had some success with that. I'll, I might talk more about that later. Uh, but uh, found a new population of. Uh, endangered species of gecko found uh, a couple of rare tortoises in the wild well i didn't the guy i hired did but anyway got some interesting naturalistic science type stuff going on so that's what i've been up to
0: awesome well i appreciate that uh jackson you've had several debates now uh your channel yep. I know you've got a lot of videos dedicated to this topic which is which is good you know we've got two seasoned. And knowledgeable uh, debaters here so it's going to be a ton of fun the audience already is pumped i'm pumped so that being said why don't we just kind of get right into it then uh jackson we are going to be uh handing it over to you for your 15 minute opening statement as always whatever you don't use of course we will uh just throw into the audience q a so whenever you're ready
1: on your first word go ahead all right i'll go ahead and start uh might take a while i got a bunch of notes here no particular order really but uh, let's start all right noah's ark is not meant to be literal in my opinion i think the story loses meaning if you take it literally Uh, by that i mean if you take it literally uh it's just about a guy who's building a boat but if you read it as a as a parable it's uh, about a guy who follows through with what he was told to do by god in spite of all the people who mocked him so that's what I think the story is really about. But uh, the structure of the ark is uh, really impossible for wood. Now, the ark was at least 450 feet long, but some say 500 feet long. In Genesis built at 510 feet, I believe. Over 80 feet wide, 50 feet tall. And uh, large wooden ships in r- uh, recent history haven't fared well in the rough seas uh and i think a global ocean with uh, catastrophic plate tectonics would be a very very rough ocean so uh, i'll give an example uh, it's a common example there are a few other less common ones but i'm just doing the largest one the wyoming schooner the largest wooden ship at least in recent history if the ark wasn't real uh 350 foot deck length 50 feet wide 30 feet tall so it was about 150 feet shorter than the ark uh, it was only kept afloat in rough seas with 90 iron cross braces and uh water pumps to expel water that still managed to come in and it did stay afloat for years but finally it did uh, sink in rough seas and that's a common theme with wooden ships over 300 feet they tend to eventually sink in rough seas uh other similarly large wooden that. the ark encounter uh the entrance in Genesis our encounter even had to use 95 tons of uh, steel plates and bolts to uh, get it up to code and keep the thing stable now uh, I mentioned rapid plate tectonics this is uh, what most creationists seem to believe uh, that all the continents were connected at the start of the flood and they rapidly moved apart during the flood and uh, by all uh, Accounts of what I've read the energy from this would simply have pretty much destroyed the earth. So no would pretty much needed a spaceship honestly Now uh, geology, I won't touch too much on geology because that's dr. McQueen's Thing but I will say that uh, evaporite deposits Really can't be accounted for in this and they're in all levels of strata volcanic ash and lava flows especially volcanic ash can't be accounted for uh by any other means in volcanic activity uh, limestone i know you guys have addressed limestone before but really it forms slowly shale even takes calm waters to form Aeolian deposits obviously can't form in water and they're in all levels of strata now zoology which is more my thing uh most creationists argue that uh, the only family level would have had to have been on the art instead of genus or species but i think that that wouldn't make any sense i'll get more into that later inbreeding is a commonly brought up problem which with only two of every vertebrate that's going to get get uh, troublesome genetic diversity uh shows the opposite of what we would expect by that i mean uh, orcas which wouldn't have had to have been on the ark and therefore their population would have remained fairly large in the ocean they have a low genetic diversity whereas forest elephants which there would have had to have been two on the ark have an unexpectedly high genetic diversity, which is the opposite of what we would expect. Now cheetahs and Tasmanian devils also have incredibly low genetic diversity, which indicates they were down to a few individuals in the past. But uh, my question is, why don't all vertebrates show this this evidence? Uh, Animals that do poorly in captivity, if we're going by family level, the pangolin is a good example uh they eat ants and pretty much nothing else if you feed them anything else they get digestive problems and they rapidly die and they die of stress before that even They'll have heart attacks in captivity if not given a naturalistic enclosure and uh dietary requirements for things like koalas while it's true that koalas you can eat other things than eucalyptus it's very rare that they will and uh, they would still need fresh leaves for a full year regardless and uh i have a question that maybe i'll address later how and when did dinosaurs go extinct if they were on the ark that's something that i haven't seen any creations address i don't think now humidity on the ark would probably be very high given the rain the uh, water leakage the respiration the feces from the animals that would cause a problem if we're not uh, if we're taking species level into account like uh tent and geometric tortoises these are from South Africa they live in very low humidity environments if they were on the ark they would get respiratory infections within a couple of weeks and and die very quickly and uh, kind of a a loophole if you will that I found if you bring two of every sex onto the ark what do you do about the parthenogenetic or hermaphrodite animals like uh, whiptail lizards some species are only female how many blind snakes they're only female snails they're hermaphrodites so it kind of introduces a, a conundrum now some people say invertebrates wouldn't have to be on the ark but uh logically they really would and they have short lifespans most of them, like goliath beetles for example live for several months monarch butterflies live for six weeks so you would have to breed them on the ark and care for their eggs and larvae and uh the longest-lived butterfly species—you could possibly argue against that—lives for 13 months, just barely over the line. The brimstone butterfly, but they would have had nothing to eat in that 13 months, so they, they all would have died anyway. Now, plants being submerged for a year would have—that uh, would have killed most adult plants and and their seeds. Uh, past a couple of weeks, acorns will drown. Similar for pine seeds. And most other conifer and deciduous seeds, flower seeds. Uh, I can think of uh, a few plants that would do okay mangroves, uh, coconut palms, they would probably live, but they would be the dominant plants on earth after this. Uh, The Parasitaxis usta pine from New Caledonia. It's a parasite of only one tree species. It actually doesn't use uh, photosynthesis. My question is, how did these seeds, assuming they survived, how did they find each other after the flood and start growing together? And after that, how did they find each other only on one island? Same goes for the Rafflesia flower, a giant flower. It grows only on the Tetrastigma vine, so they would have to find each other after the flood, and that's pretty unlikely. Species distribution also makes no sense if the ark landed in Turkey. Marsupials, that's the most common example given, found mostly in Australia and South America, with one exception here in North America. Uh, Lemurs, all found in Madagascar, the dodo bird found only on the island of Mauritius, giant tortoises in the Galapagos, the Grand Cayman Blue Iguana, and Grand Cayman. But even at sea, distributions don't make any sense. You would think that all sea turtles would be distributed globally after a global flood. But the Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtle is uh, distributed in the Gulf of Mexico and on the East Coast only. And the Flatback Sea Turtle is even more restricted with uh, northern Australia, the coast. And right whales are found only in the Atlantic, which is baffling considering they should be in every ocean. Now the ark took decades to build. According to in Genesis, it's 55 to 75 years, but some give even longer, up to 100 years. Uh, wood decays even in dry conditions without upkeep and replacement the average lifespan for a wooden deck is 10 to 15 years for example and wooden ships have a similar lifespan without upkeep and maintenance so it seems to me that Noah will be replacing wood as fast as he's building the thing Uh, more zoologies to interrupt the construction Uh, the pygmy goby fish lives for eight weeks it's the shortest lived vertebrate on earth and they breed in coral reefs which would have been destroyed by uh, the plate tectonic movement and being submerged too deep so they would have had nowhere to breed breed so they shouldn't exist today if this flood happened now octopuses uh, octopus have a similar problem most of them lived for six months to a year so they would have to have somewhere to breed and given the turbulence and turbidity of the water they may not have a place to breed uh, on the ark, the giant Sundar rat lives for six months, so it would have to be bred on the ark. Laborde's chameleon lives for five months, so it would have to be bred and then its eggs incubated on the ark, which would have been very difficult. It's difficult even today. Uh, shrews live for six to 12 months, so they would have to be bred on the ark. Uh, containing some animals on a wooden surface would have caused problems for some species, like elephants. In can confined space, they would have developed foot problems or even infections. Especially on wood. Uh, Same with walruses and sea lions, which are semi aquatic and couldn't stay at sea for a full year. Uh, Chimps and gorillas are escape artists. So in zoos, they have to actually weld screws in place or they'll unscrew them and get out. That's how uh, good they are escaping. So I'm not sure how you're containing these in in an arc. Once the animals are off the arc, they have nothing to eat because uh, plants. The plants have to grow back, and some ecosystems take decades to regenerate. But uh, the carnivores probably would have immediately e- eaten most of the herbivores before that problem came up, anyway. Now, why I think species would have had to have been on the ark and not genus or family, I'll give an example. There are 130 species of the Bolitoglossa genus salamanders. They take 10 to 12 years to reach sexual maturity. So, in 4,000 years, these slow breeding Salamanders are going to have to diversify into 130 species, and all tortoise species, 49 species that are known, are in the same family. I'll use two examples: the hingebacks and the spider tortoises breed very slowly. They lay a couple eggs a year. They take about a year to hatch, or the better part of a year to hatch, and not all the hatchlings survive. So, given the number of species and population sizes, it's really impossible for just Two of these salamanders and two of these tortoises to have been on the ark. But let's grant family level was on the ark. Answers in Genesis says 7,000 animals total. The Fort Worth Zoo has about that number of animals. Uh, A 40-hour work week for 75 animal keepers there adds up to 3,000 man hours a week or 600 a day. That adds up to an impossible 75 hours a day of work for eight people on the ark. Now, uh, some of the food requirements. Elephants would need 200,000 pounds of food in a year for a pair, 730 pounds of eucalyptus for koalas, 100,000 pounds for a pair of hippos, 86,000 for rhinos, 1,400 pounds of meat for wolves, about 25 million ants and termites for an aardvark. They could eat other things if they had to, I guess, but really, pangolins would have no choice but to eat vegetables or they would get uh, digestion issues. Now some problems with the ark, back to the ark itself. Lighting would have been an issue, and ventilation especially, with just uh, one window as described in the Bible. So you would have high humidity and probably high temperature, which is a, res- res- a recipe for respiratory infections, especially given all the bat and the bird and the animal feces on board. Now back to wood decay. Again, it took 55 to 75 years to build. So starting with the frame of the ship, In the years, the frame would have rotted out and begun to at least fall apart. So the main structure would have to be rebuilt in a never-ending cycle. Uh, I'm not sure the properties of gopher wood as described in the Bible, but uh, cedar shingles on roof have a 30-year lifespan with annual maintenance. Pressure-treated poles, telephone poles, have a 40-year lifespan. And again, interesting Genesis says it took over 50 years to build. So even by modern standards, with Pressure treatment you have an arc that is beginning to rot as it's finished or not beginning to rot it's it is uh, Now bristlecone pines on a different subject there are three bristlecone pine trees that are known to be older than the flood uh, the Prometheus tree was cut down sadly and found to be 5,000 years old Methuselah which still stands is forty eight hundred and fifty years old Uh, In 2012, it was surpassed by a nearby tree that was found to be 5,060 years old. Uh, The fact that these trees exist at all uh, means that there couldn't have been a global flood 4,400 years ago. One minute. Okay. I'm probably not going to get through it, but let's see. Uh, The oceans would warm during uh, this flood from the energy of the continents moving. But even if the continents didn't move, the the ocean would uh, become uniform in temperature. This would be catastrophic for... Krill populations. Populations of Antarctic krill would plummet from a warmer ocean and tropical krill from a, a cooler equatorial ocean. Blue whales, for example, need to eat 16 tons of krill a day. So over this year-long period, krill populations are going to be devastated and uh, blue whales are basically going to go extinct. They're, they really shouldn't exist today. Shallow ecosystems wouldn't fare any better. Seagrass in the Indian and Pacific Oceans, for example example. This would mean the Dugong, and manatee-like creature, would have had nothing to eat for a year and would almost definitely starve to death.
0: Ten seconds. If you want to wrap uh, it up, Jackson, or was that the end of it?
1: Uh I've got more, but we can wrap it up there.
0: All right, I appreciate that. I know uh fifteen minutes. Can go by very quickly uh we've already got questions coming in so again thank you everybody in the chat for being here i appreciate the uh, support the super stickers and super chat so keep tagging me with your questions at standing for truth so that being said we're going to hand it over to professor david mcqueen uh professor you also have 15 minutes whenever you are ready and if you i know there's a couple pictures and a video you want me to share so you just you you just cue me yeah i'm good to go um
2: Jackson, I appreciate your uh, careful look at all the different areas that uh, you argue from the book of Genesis being an allegory to issues of humidity and plants. I have some rebuttals for that, but I'll save that for the rebuttal part of uh, uh, our uh, discussion. All right. Why is this uh, so important? Why? Why? Should uh, Jackson and I uh, take our time to uh, look at this issue in the level of detail that we're going to over the last, over the next, rather, two hours? Well, let me suggest uh, a way to think about things uh, regarding this whole debate about Noah's Ark and also Noah's Flood, which which we may touch on. Um, let's begin with three points. The Bible provides data for us about the ark's dimensions and so forth. History provides data regarding Noah's ark. For example, the World War II photographs that were taken and eyewitness sightings through the years. And then, Eyewitness, eyewitnesses uh, provide data uh, for the existence and survival of the ark uh, on Mount Ararat. Let's start with the issue of the Bible providing data. And Jackson, I want you to realize that uh, from my viewpoint, the Bible is a historical record an inspired uh, historical record. And so the argument that many make, oh, uh, McQueen, you and the other young earth creationists, you shouldn't view the Bible as something that provides you uh, data and information because it's not a book of science. Well, it turns out if you go back to historical works like that of Tacitus and other of the Roman historians they occasionally do talk about science in their book they talk about genealogies and they talk about many other things and so the fact that uh, the Bible talks about genealogies and spiritual issues in addition to what science we can glean from it uh, that is uh, that's not a good argument it's certainly not an argument Jackson, that the Bible is allegorical. The vocabulary of uh, the book of Genesis is not allegorical. Those of you that uh, want to turn with me to Genesis chapter six, one of the things that I want to argue, I'm interested to Jackson's rebuttal to this, is that the uh, the ark is spoken of in Genesis chapter six, and in doing so, a tremendous amount of data uh, that I'll use during the rebuttal part, um, is given to many of the concerns that uh, uh, that Jackson uh, gave. Now, I'm not going to uh, uh, read except a couple of verses from Genesis chapter 6, and I'm going to summarize from there. In Genesis 6.13, we have the important issue of judgment. The reason Noah's Ark is important is that Noah's Ark is an example, an an allegory uh, to the saving grace of the Lord Jesus and the saving grace of God throughout the Old and the New Testaments. So it's not allegorical when God says this, and God said unto Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence through them and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he goes on to give what I consider to be data. I'm not going to read verse by verse, but in 14, it does mention gopher wood. No one knows what gopher wood uh, was. Um, But as a geologist and as someone who studied chemistry, the next sentence there is terribly important. Room shall you make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. Whatever pitch is, whether it's a petroleum-related product or whether it is uh, a uh, substance from the trees in the pre-flood world, it provided provided waterproofing. And so as we look at the data that is talked about in Genesis chapter 6, Let's go over it item by item. Gopher wood was used. Rooms were uh, built. Certainly these rooms, the Hebrew word carries with it the idea of nest, but maybe it wouldn't be a bad thing for a spider monkey to be walking around in the year-long flood. So, but it could have been uh, encapsulated, so to speak it was waterproof we'll return in a moment to the 300 by 50 by 30 cubit size of the of the ark there was a window up above now keep in mind that this window went most of the 300 cubits um, and so the uh, argument for ventilation is done away with when you realize jackson that this window was that far. There was one door in the ark, which was sealed by God and then opened by Noah a year later. There were three decks and food was brought on board the ark. Enough food, I would imagine, by God's providence to sustain the animals uh, in the months after the uh, flood was over. There were two of every kind of living, uh, not living, uh, two of every kind of animal that breathed, and this include insects and so forth. They had to be breathing. And judgment is a clear theme when you talk about uh, the ark, the avoidance of judgment. And so, one thing that I think critics like Jackson, uh, overlook is the actual uh, end of uh, uh, Genesis chapter six um, and the beginning of chapter seven. And the Lord said unto Noah, come thou and all thy house into the ark for thee have I seen righteous before me in this generation. Out of respect for Dr. Henry Morris, who, uh, uh wrote this commentary, I am reading from the King James uh, tonight in our uh, discussion. And so as I look at this list of items here, including the spiritual side of things, the idea that this was a judgment on a sinful world and that the ark saved the eight people and the animals from that judgment, I'm going to argue that the Bible provides data. My second point as an introduction is that history provides data. If Noah's Ark was as um, symbolic as Jackson has suggested, throughout history, there would not have been sightings of the Ark. Um, I had an opportunity in 2008 to be part of an expedition that had a very specific purpose Here's my field notebook from going to Turkey in 2008. I was invited to be a geologist on on a team of archaeologists because a group of Christians in Hong Kong had thought they had been uh, given a piece of wood from the ark. It turns out the wood that they thought they had was actually an igneous rock, and I was able to document that. Now, why would I even comment about this in uh, a debate format? I debated with my fellow Christians that they made an honest mistake. It did look from a distance as if there was a grain, but it was a a grain of an igneous rock, not not the grain of uh, uh, wood from the ark. When I say history provides data, what I mean by that is uh, World War II photographs uh, have, have shown the, uh, the Ark. Now, Jackson may counter argue, well, McQueen, if there are photographs of the Ark on Ararat, how come you can't show us a picture? It is a frustrating uh, aspect of this historical part. Uh, in the 1980s, I attended a conference on the Ark in the western United States. And I had the opportunity to hear speak and shake the hand of a man that was old at that time, but as a boy was taken by his family, Turkish or Armenian, to uh, actually see Noah's Ark. So I believe there are eyewitnesses' accounts. And so the eyewitnesses provide data. So whether it's the Bible or history or uh, eyewitnesses, we can see evidence. Uh, for uh, Noah's Ark. Now, help me to keep track of my own time and tell me how much time I've got listed in my intro, please.
0: Good question, Professor McQueen. You've got four minutes and 10 seconds.
2: Okay, good. Now, let's go into the issue of the size of the Ark that Jackson has already um, discussed. Um, and I'll use my forearm here as an example. Scoop back a bit. The cubit was the distance from the tip of your finger to your elbow. Now, uh, Dr. Henry Morris, as he writes about the uh, uh, dimensions of the arc, is uh, very careful to say this. Assuming the ancient cubit to have been only Seventeen and a half inches, which is the smallest, except suggested by any authority, the ark could have carried as many as a hundred and twenty-five thousand sheep-sized animals. Um, since there are not are not more than twenty-five thousand species of land animals known, and he includes here. Jackson, mammals, birds, reptiles and amphibians, um, he would suggest a very minimal size. Now keep in mind that I have been mentored by Dr. Henry Morris. And so I'll use this 17 inch cubit, realizing that uh, a man that I highly respect, um, Ken Ham, at the uh, 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 Grand Canyon, um, he and I hiked the canyon together. I spent a week with him. I have a tremendous amount of respect, tremendous amount of respect for his building of the ark there in uh, uh, Kentucky that uh, Jackson referred to. Um, he chooses a different size of the ark. So the arc ends up bigger. As a debate point, I'd prefer to use the smaller size. One way you can think about it is if you look at a um, American football field, it's 300 feet from goalpost from end zone to end zone. And so the arc would have to be put sideways to fit in most uh, or diagonally, I should say, to fit in most uh, football stadiums. The issue of it having uh, three decks, we will see when we come to the rebuttal part, uh, that solves a lot of the problems that uh, uh, Jackson was worrying about. Now, do keep in uh, in mind this, that um, if we use this figure of 17 inches or we use, Uh, the 1.7 feet in a cubit that uh, Ken Ham has used. Uh, Those of you that are international need to know this is about a third of a meter or 300 centimeters, 30 centimeters rather. Um, And so whatever we argue about the size of a cubit, I want to argue for the rest of the hour and a half. Let's take the minimum values and use that as a issue. Do I have a minute left, uh,
0: Donnie? Yes, you've got 30 seconds, Professor. Okay,
2: I'll end my introduction by beginning a a critique of Jackson by saying the Ark is not an allegory. Biblically, it would be called a type. Um, It was a wooden vessel that saved just like the cross of Christ is a wooden object that's saved. Thank you, Donnie.
0: I appreciate it, uh, David. That was uh, perfect timing. Uh, 15 minutes from the both of you, Jackson, Professor McQueen, I appreciate it. We've got a great chat right now, over 60 people enjoying this debate. Uh, Questions are still coming in. Reminder, please tag me at Standing for Truth uh, with your questions for the audience Q&A. We are now moving into the uninterrupted rebuttal round. The rebuttals will be 10 minutes. And uh, we're going to hand it over to you, Jackson. I will give you a one minute warning once we reach the nine minute mark, just to let you know, to kind of start winding things down. But whenever you're ready, you've got 10 minutes.
1: All right. You mentioned the, the Ark on Ararat being found. Uh, to, to my knowledge, there are going to couple the potential of those. But uh, even answers in Genesis doesn't really have much credence to it. As far as I can tell. I was watching a video the other day where they were talking about that Uh, ventilation with one window up top Uh, there would still be stale air with just that one window you would ideally need a second window probably lower down to get some circulation going now history at the time of the flood you had ancient Egyptians and ancient Chinese uh, writing their histories as this flood supposedly happened uh, you said 125,000 animals were on the ark, or could be on the ark, with three decks, but that's probably not taking into account food or water requirements. And then that's just size. You can you can cram every human on Rhode Island, I think I read somewhere, but that wouldn't really be comfortable. Uh, and you're not taking into account specialized animal diets or care requirements. Uh, some animals just aren't going to survive in captivity even today like the injury the pink fairy armadillo the pangolin They're all not gonna make it uh, Now the Ark encounter was constructed uh, in a Very modern way Obviously, but uh, again 95 tons of steel plates and bolts half a million wood screws uh, cranes there was really no way they came up with to uh, for an ancient family well not that ancient but a- ancient well yes ancient ancient family to uh, build it all all by themselves I've heard some people argue that they uh, contracted it out but that wouldn't make much sense to me because the Bible says everyone was uh, scoffing at them basically so I don't know who would work for them now uh, that's what I got on the rebuttal. So I guess I'll just finish some of the points I have left from the opening statement. That's all right. Uh,
2: yes, that's fine.
1: All right. The argument that uh, animal speed or environment explains the order of strata makes no sense, as some people argue. I don't know if uh, uh, Dr. McQueen takes that stance, but animals like trilobites and modern sea urchins should be found in the same. Cambrian rock, but they're not. Uh, Permian mammal like reptiles and small mammals today should be found together, but they aren't. And dinosaurs can be much slower than modern mammals or ostriches or anything, but uh, nowhere are they found together. Now, if we grant family and not genus level, uh, here's a group of animals that would do poorly in captivity, as I was saying. The bumblebee bat, which is its own family, the suckerfoot bat, the honey possum, the penguin, Indriadae lemurs, hummingbirds, penguins, numbats, Central American river turtle, Hawatsin or hateson I'm not sure I pronounced it, warty snake, giant salamanders, Sicilians, the purple frog, and tarsiers. Just a short list. And reefs like the Great Barrier Reefs would have uh, been destroyed by being submerged or the tectonic plate movement. Now, given growth rates, it would take at least 100,000 years for most reefs to reform and even longer for the Great Barrier Reef. Now, uh, let's see. Uh, that's all I got from there for now. So uh, we can turn it over.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate that, uh, Jackson. Um, that's a few minutes there that we can throw into the uh, audience Q&A. So let's hand it over to Professor David McQueen now. Uh, David, you have up to uh, 10 minutes whenever you're ready.
2: Okay, I've got my timer started. Uh, Jackson, I'm troubled by so many of your arguments that I almost don't know where to begin. But uh, let me get my clipboard and begin with your accusation that Noah would have to repair the Ark as quickly as he built it. Now, the view of Noah's Ark that's portrayed in a lot of children's books is a little uh, boat like this uh, that is in the shape of of a real boat and you see giraffe and so forth sticking their heads out and Then, in a modern, in a more modern creationist book, you'll see uh, uh, dinosaurs sticking their heads out. Well, this is a silly uh, way to think about Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark is, as you correctly pointed out, took uh, uh, decades to build. And it was in the shape of a barge, not a boat, like I. Uh, just showed there. So what is the data we have from the historical book of the Bible? As I showed the data before, uh, I can show it again uh, later on. Here it is. Let's notice the things that present a rebuttal to what you're saying. It was made of wood, but it was waterproofed as it was going. So the Pitch, this waterproofing material, whether it's from a tree or whether it's a petroleum product, um, tar, if you will, um, would have gone on the wood as the ark was being built. So a counter argument, a critique of your viewpoint, Jackson, is that there would have been no need 10 years into it to uh, rebuild the lower deck because... Um, it would have rotted away. The pitch would have uh, uh, taken care of it. Now, could a vessel the size of Noah's Ark have survived the flood? Uh, Donnie's been kind enough to uh, prepare for me a one-minute video that shows the stability of the Ark in a very violent uh, aqueous environment flooding environment may we show that one minute video now donnie
0: definitely let me um stop the timer real quick so i can share screen here
2: okay good and I'll i'll get the audio for people thank you very much appreciate this watch this jackson i think this might change your mind here Those are the conservative dimensions we've talked about.
0: Notice that it did not tip over. In 2014, a group of master students at Leicester University decided to settle the question. They used the biblical measurements to calculate the size of the ark. Then they used the density of the water to figure buoyancy, and from there determined how much weight the ship could endure before sinking. Their conclusion? Noah could have put 70,000 animals on board And the ship would have floated And what do you know? It floats
2: Okay, let me uh, continue My uh, rebuttal And I'm going to write down that number Jackson, so we can talk about it more They claim that There might be 70,000 Individuals uh, On board uh, The ark one of the things that creation science have argued since Dr. Morris began speaking about this in the 1950s is the average size of an animal on board the ark. Even if you take the dinosaur fossils we find and you, uh, do an average size of those, uh, dinosaur fossils, uh, most dinosaurs are actually, uh, quite small. As a matter of fact, uh, Truth be told, a lot of these dinosaurs are the size of a rat, not a sheep. Dr. Morris always assumed the average size was that of a sheep. Um, But let's go to the other end of the argument. Uh, You know that uh, one of the comments that my opponent made, and let me get down to it here, is... uh, the idea of humidity killing uh, many of the insects, geckos, and so forth. Um, since there was water stored on the ark, and uh, one very good thing that Kinham's group in Kentucky have done is shown how these cisterns uh, might work on board the ark, uh, the needed humidity uh, could have been provided by the water that was being moved uh, through the uh, ark uh, to water the animals. So that issue, I believe, goes away. Um, he commented about the span of monarch butterflies and other insects. So two of each kind of butterfly fluttered in, and he's made a, a good point that we need to discuss whether it was at the genus level or the species level. I think that for my purposes tonight, uh, we'll look at the different genera of animals, butterflies, snails, and so forth. But let's take this one example of a monarch butterfly. Absolutely no problem uh, with these creatures uh, reproducing on board the ark, since we argue that the ark uh, was needed for 12 full months. And so, uh, that is not a problem. Dr. Henry Morris, and I'd encourage you to go back and read this, Jackson, if you have not. In the 1961 book, the Wickham and Morris book, Dr. Henry Morris got a tremendous amount of help from a botanist named Lambert. And he had done quite a bit of study, actually, about soaking different kinds of seeds in water, which he put in his garage, apparently for a year, and then they would germinate afterwards. So um, that is one counter argument that I would give. Secondly, I think Jackson is falling into the trap of so many people in believing that essentially Noah and his three sons and his wife and the three daughters, the eight people, uh, were foolish or ignorant. Of many things. I would counter argue that uh, there was genius in ancient man. And as they prepared to take every uh, bit of food that they needed on board the ark, they were careful to, to realize that the kind of food that a certain type of creature would need, like a penguin, for example, would be different than the food that would be needed for a lion or a tiger. Furthermore, they two could have it. Say You've again. You've got two minutes, Professor McQueen. Thank you, sir. Uh, they could have taken their own seed on, not so much to make bean soup while they were on board the ark, but to plant uh, afterwards. Uh, the seeds that uh, Jackson argued would die or could not produce certain things. Uh, could have been taken by the eight people and their descendants uh, worldwide after the time of the Tower of Babel. Fascinating point that he made about the right whale being only in the Atlantic. Well, as a flood geologist, looking at the rocks that are predominantly in blue, we'll focus on them, the N stands for Nashville, the uh, C stands for Chicago, These are flood rocks, rocks from the time of the Great Flood. So I certainly believe there was one World continent that broke apart uh, during the time of the Great Flood. And so when we look at whales as they are today, the fact that right whales are only found in the Atlantic is a characteristic of the post-flood world. It speaks in no way to the conditions in the pre-flood world. How much time there, Donnie? Is it close?
0: Yes, you've got 15 seconds. Ah, you take it (laughs) over, my friend. I appreciate that. I know these uh, rebuttals fly by. Uh, 10 minutes does not feel like 10 minutes. So I appreciate the opening statements and the uh, rebuttals, Jackson and Professor McLean. Time really flies by. We've got a great chat, some great questions. We have hit the hour mark. Uh therefore, what we can do is just take a few minute break um, in order to be ready and I guess energize for the discussion portion. We will be asking each other questions. So if uh, uh, if we wanted to do a, a few minute break. Uh, yes.
2: And please. Jackson, I'm looking forward to getting my uh, questions for you, my friend. Uh, could you drop my video and let me take a, a five minute break here? And I will be back to uh, discuss with my opponent.
0: Take your time. Take your time. Okay, well, while we are on uh, break, since we've got a lot of new people in the chat, what I'll do is just go over a few reminders uh, for everybody. We've got some uh, big debates coming up, uh, a good mixture of theology debates, soteriology, eschatology, science, the nature of God, so on and so forth. I'm trying to get you guys a strong uh, variety, I guess you could say, of, of topics. So uh, next month, I'm extremely pumped for this one, is limited atonement biblical. So we've got a debate on the extent of the atonement. Is it uh, universal or yes. limited? Matt Slick versus Joshua Gibbs, both of these seasoned debaters have been here before, so that's definitely going to be one to remember. First thing in 2022, does the New Testament teach that Jesus is God? Chris Date versus Dr. Shabir Ali. Again, two very, very seasoned debaters. Both Chris and uh, Dr. Ali are uh, professionals, very scholarly, so that's definitely going to be an epic debate. Uh, closer to the end of this month, we've got another awesome debate here, was Jesus God and man. Fully God and fully man during uh, his earthly ministry. C.J. Cox versus Stanley Terry. We've also got an epic debate on Bible translations and uh, textual criticism. Uh, Is the King James version of the Bible superior to modern versions? So Nick Sayers and uh, Rob Rowe from Sentinel Apologetics will be debating that topic. The... King James only controversy. So that's going to be a ton of fun. We've also got uh, Jackson Rowe. Jackson Rowe is going to be back here next month for his much anticipated round two with uh, Dr. Kent Hovind. They're going to be debating this time um, the same topic the Genesis flood and uh, Noah's Ark fact or fiction. Last month they debated is there evidence for human evolution? Tons of great feedback on that debate. I think it's sitting somewhere near uh, 6,000 views already. Again, we've got another uh, awesome uh, Nature of God debate in a couple weeks. Is God one or three divine persons? Again, two very seasoned debaters, Stacey Turbeville and Kelly Powers, two debaters who have been debating this topic for years and years and years. That's going to be awesome as well. Uh, Check the event section because I've... I must have 20, 25 events scheduled there. Uh, so please check that out. Big main event, first uh, thing in January. Eschatology, you know, one of uh, my favorite topics. Pre-trib versus post-trib. The rapture debate. Kent Hovind and Pastor Andrew Sluter. So that's definitely going to be a ton of fun as well. So that being said, guys, uh, please make sure you are tagging me with your questions. We are going to be having an audience Q&A. Um, the format for tonight has been 15-minute openings, 10-minute rebuttals, which we just concluded. We're now going to be moving into the roughly 35 to 40-minute discussion portion where Jackson and uh, David will be asking each other questions pertaining to the topic. Uh, During the openings and rebuttals, a a ton of interesting points worthy of uh, discussion, in-depth discussion, I would say. Uh, So definitely this discussion is going to be one to remember. Then we're going to have five-minute closing statements and an audience Q&A. We always have good audience Q&As here. So yeah, make sure you are tagging me so that being said uh we are just going to be on break for another couple minutes and we'll see you in a minute and we are back professor mcqueen to go. good to see you jackson good to see you as well okay so uh, as i said we're moving into the discussion portion Uh, We like to keep it as equally timed as possible, of course, sticking to one topic at a time. I will be watching um, the time. I'll keep you guys posted on that if I need to jump in at any point, I will. Uh, But that being said, let's jump right into it. Uh, Jackson, Professor McQueen, the floor is yours.
2: You know, since Jackson is Uh about the age of my own sons, I'll let him go first. Ask me a question, my friend.
1: All right. Let's see. Uh, You mentioned monarch butterflies breeding on the Ark, Uh, so Noah would have had to grown milkweed, is that correct? If
2: uh, the modern monarch butterfly does indeed eat uh, milkweed, then growing milkweed in soil that he brought on board the Ark uh, during that 12-month period, I don't think would have been a problem. Now, of course, he could have brought on board live plants, and again, uh, I go back, Jackson, to the fact that the Bible is a historical record, and in uh, the passage that I referred to, uh, if you want to go back and reread uh, Genesis chapter 6, he very specifically uh, instructed Noah to bring on board the food that would was be needed. Now, In most of my debates in the past, my opponents have talked about lions and tigers and dinosaurs and so forth. So I very much appreciate you bringing up the issue of insects. uh, yeah, Because it's an area that I don't think uh, a lot of my creation science buddies have spent a lot of time in. But I will counter argue that uh, when you deal with something, like how the uh, insects might have lived, uh, how snails uh, and other uh, creatures uh, uh, might have lived. Uh, I think that if we give Noah the credit of decades to think about it and the fact that God was leading him, now keep in mind that he did not gather the butterflies. They flew in the door of the Ark so that would be my answer to your question stop my timer here okay Uh, may I Donnie go on to my question for Jackson
0: absolutely go ahead Um,
2: when you have presented this argument about um the humidity requirements for the different uh creatures on board the ark are you aware that some of the modern uh depictions if you will uh of the ark as and i went to my workshop and brought a piece of wood to uh show now what I need to do before our next debate is actually cut this thing in the ratio of 300 to 30 to show, uh, its stability. Um, Donnie, would you mind pulling up that PowerPoint slide that shows how the arc is at the middle of comfort and stability, Donnie? And I'll keep on talking until you pull it up there. So, My question for you, um, uh, Jackson, is the, again, here it gives you a sense of the size of it. uh, And I'm arguing that it's even shorter than 500 feet. But the next slide, Donnie. Yeah, here's a very interesting thing. If you look at the dimensions of the arc, it finds a balance between stability, strength, and comfort jackson how would you counter argue that diagram go ahead and drop it so we can see his face
1: well i wouldn't necessarily argue against the fact that it's uh, not proportioned correctly I'm, I'm just saying that a uh, a wooden structure 400 to 500 feet long depending on what interpretation of a cubit you're you're taking would be a very unstable structure not necessarily the shape but the uh, the material, it's made out of, it was a okay. steel ship, um, I would say it's fine.
2: Well, let me build on that. Um, does it influence you at all that the uh, arc was waterproofed both inside and out? See, when I have talked about this in the past, and I've been studying this for 50 years, I've always emphasized the fact that it was waterproofed on the outside let's call this the outside part of the of the ark. in order to keep it waterproof from the waters of the flood and then inside it was uh, uh waterproof in order to preserve it uh through the thousands of years until marco polo and other people saw it in the mountains of ararat but our discussion has opened my mind to another possibility Perhaps another reason that it was made waterproof inside and out, or especially if it was a tarry substance, it would keep it from rotting, uh, which you presented as one of your critiques. What do you think of that idea?
1: Uh, Could be that the tar would keep it from rotting, but the the oceans would be so turbulent and the arc so large that I don't think any amount of waterproofing is going to keep the thing together. Uh, you know, well, the catastrophic. Well, place let, the me,
2: let me counter argue that. Uh, the video that I showed that showed the model of the ark being stable as those waves were passing through doesn't that provide a reasonable explanation for how the ark could have withstood um, the violence of the great flood?
1: Well, it can show that it wouldn't capsize, but it would still be thrown around quite a bit and flexed back and forth in these waves, being such a huge structure.
2: Okay, and you have brought up a very, a very good point. from From my viewpoint, as a uh, geologist who's also a Christian, a young Earth creationist, when I go back to um, the uh, actual historical account. Uh, from um, the book of Genesis, I come over to words like this. Um, And in Genesis, whoops, I'm looking for Genesis 8, 1. Find it here. Um, And the waters prevailed upon the earth 150 days. and, And God remembered Noah and every living thing all the cattle that was with him on the ark and God made a wind to pass over the earth and so forth. Now, it's not as if God forgot Noah, but the word, the Hebrew word remembered there is that God was fulfilling his promise. So Jackson, when you argue that the violence of the flood would have caused a problem in tearing the ark apart, I go back to the fact that this was a actual event where the creator of the universe watched over Noah and uh, the uh, members of the uh, the members of his family and the uh, creatures on board the ark um, and preserved them uh, in the same way that God provided salvation to me and all the rest of the Christians that have ever lived and believers Old Testament believers not in what you call an allegory, but an actual an account of God's loving grace going through the 6,000 years of our Earth's history. Will you even admit as a logical possibility that a creator watched over the ark during the violence of the flood?
1: Well, that would really be the only explanation as uh, to how the ark could have stayed together, I think. But I, I don't believe it's a literal story. No. Let's, let's go back to a, uh, uh,
2: an argument that you've given about um, the dinosaurs on board the Ark. And let me use two of my models from my grandchildren. First, the knight in shining armor riding on horseback. And let's talk for a moment, for a moment, Uh, take the human off the horse. So the genus of horses, as I recall Jackson, is equus. And so how many different kinds of horses would need to be on the ark uh, when uh, they came to Noah? I would suggest that something that you and Donnie have studied quite a bit, the whole idea of the uh, gene pool of animals Uh, I find it fascinating that you are initiating a study of endangered species uh, around the earth, but how many different kinds of horses would need to be on board the ark? I would argue that you'd only need a male and a female because in the same way that you can take a dog with a very extensive gene pool, and breed from that dog over uh, a a very short period of time, everything from the huge horses that pull the beer wagon all the way down to the Shetland ponies of Scotland, uh, you could breed that uh, in the time after the flood. What is your thinking, Jackson, about the number of animals, just from the standpoint of, your interest in biology that would need to be uh types, kinds, uh on the arc. Would he have needed 20 different kinds of horses, 20 different kinds of uh triceratops? What's your thinking about that?
1: Well in most cases I think you would need the species level because as I illustrated with the polluter salamanders, they have such a slow reproductive rate. And then they have to diverge into 130 species over the course of 4,000 years. And that's from uh, a genus, not even the family, which most creationists argue was the level on the ark. They're uh, plethodontid salamanders. So that's uh, a whole different problem. And they breed very slowly. Those of you that are watching this debate
2: may have walked into the room thinking that. Nothing that I say would change Jackson's mind tonight, or that nothing that he says would change my mind. Now, as far as Noah's heart being factual, you'd be right. And concerning Jackson, nothing that I say tonight would immediately uh, turn turn him into a uh, fundamental Sunday school teacher this coming Sunday. But I am Jackson. Uh, showing you the respect of writing down this salamander issue. Give me that example again of how long it takes for that particular salamander to speciate.
1: Uh, They reach sexual maturity at 10 to 12 years, and there are 132 species, I think.
2: Okay, what's the name of the salamander?
1: Bolitoglossa is the genus.
2: Uh, Spell it for me.
1: Uh, I would have to look. What well, I,
2: well, just what letter does it begin with?
1: B. Bullettoclosa.
2: Okay. I have a buddy locally who's uh, did did a lot of work on salamanders. Goes to the um, he goes to the Great Smoky Mountains, flipping over rocks looking for salamanders. I will ask him this question about these 132 species. My thinking. One thing you need to know about me, Jackson, is that over the years I've taught college uh, and high school biology. So from what I know, whatever salamander kind was taken on board the ark could have in the years uh, uh, since the ark, the thousands of years, uh, developed 132 species. Uh, even with this 10 to 12 year maturity issue that you brought up, um, uh, I don't see that as a huge problem. Now, critique what I just said. Am I missing something here?
1: Well, I'll give you another example of the tortoises, which are uh, even slower to breed. They, uh, Many of them reach maturity at 20 years. They lay Some of them lay only a couple of eggs in a year. And of those eggs that hatch, only not even 50% probably survive to adulthood. And some of these tortoises are, num- are originally numbered in the millions. So
2: okay, let me let me comment about that, uh, and I'll use uh, a Bible word, a theological word, and that is the idea of providence. Uh, God providentially brought the kinds of tortoises to the um, ark that could, in the post-flood time, end up being the kinds of tortoises that Darwin found on the Galapagos Islands. I know you've been there and have seen them with your own eyes. Yeah. Um, let me challenge you with another uh, issue that I, that I find fascinating and that's the issue of dinosaurs on board the ark. Most will recognize uh, this dinosaur uh, from uh, uh, your study, the Stegosaurus. These plates here are examples of the intelligent design of the creature to provide ways to dissipate heat. But let's talk about the ones of these that, that came on board. If you go to the kind of charts that uh, children love to color in and you look at Stegosaurus, which is on this side, let me get a size from the other side of my chart here. Uh, It says that Stegosaurus is almost 8 meters long or 25 feet long. Now, let's approach this in two ways, and Jackson, I'd like your reaction to it. If what we're saying is true, uh, here you've got a creature that may be 7 meters long, two of them, would there have been enough room on board the ark? And the answer, I believe, is yes. Uh, a creation scientist named John Woodmoropy has done a feasibil- feasibility study on the Ark, and this is available at the websites. Uh, I have talked with John Woodmoropy's real name is Jan Petschkes. He studied this out in, in Chicago for many years. What Petschkes points out is that uh, you could do all the different animals the food, the water and everything and have at least a third of the Ark uh, left over. And so if we deal with adult uh, stegosauruses, uh there'd still be room. But let's look at it another way. What if God, as he brought the creatures to the eight people, brought them simpler children and adolescents to deal with? As a father of four, I've raised four human adolescents, and I know that would be tough on board the ark. But what about juvenile and and um, and uh, uh, I won't use the word baby, because they couldn't very well walk there. But juvenile dinosaurs as an answer to the size problem—do you find that that rings through? That that rings true,
1: Jackson? Well. Uh, the problem with that is uh, they can tell from seropod uh, humerus bones, I believe, the approximate growth rate, and yeah. within a year, they're getting pretty big, and they're consuming a lot of food, so I think there's still a problem with that.
2: The counter-argument that Dr. Henry, Henry Morris began using in the 1950s and certainly through the 60s was the... A argument of hibernation. Almost every uh, creature that breathes air uh, can enter a hibernation period. Even uh, the most uh, biologically challenged uh, people that are watching this debate know about bears hibernating and their metabolism slows down and so forth. And so I would think, whether we're talking about horses or dinosaurs, that the issue of hibernation might be a way to uh, be a partial explanation of how eight people could have tended this many people, this many animals. The argument that you gave last hour, about the number of people that it would take to um, in a modern zoo to handle these creatures. um, I think that that's not a good argument. Because, again, uh, as you correctly point out, it's foolish to think that they had to work 40 hours in a 24-hour day. Does the idea of hibernation ring true to you, Jackson?
1: Well, to force all animals to go into hibernation at once would be a supernatural explanation. So, I mean, without again, that, there's not, there's not much. And again, to... from,
2: from my viewpoint... A supernatural explanation is not problematic I'm, I'm taking too much uh, time uh, Jackson go ahead and ask me a question and then we'll come to Are this axis deer here in a minute
1: uh, you're all right let me see uh, you mentioned penguins yeah. uh, well the, the penguins have a, a new problem even if they were hibernating they would probably overheat uh even equatorial penguins the the galapagos penguins most heat tolerant of all of the penguins uh they compensate for that by having the water being incredibly cold the Humboldt current comes up past chile and into uh into the galapagos and keeps it cool from the southern southern current as you mentioned i've I've been there and i've swam in that water it's incredibly cold it's it's way colder than you would expect So, we would have a problem with the penguins.
2: Okay. Let me uh, counter-argument the penguin and the cool water. Uh, Modern uh, creationists that have studied the architecture of the ark, the naval architecture of it, can imagine a system of piping and cisterns of water uh, adequate to... um, provide the initial water needed even to cool the penguins down as it would move down to their pen, cage, or nest. Now, a critique that you've already brought up is the idea of catastrophic plate tectonics, the heat that would be produced by that, and the nature of the rainfall. Now, do keep in mind that from the biblical data, uh, there was no rain, uh, after the first six months. And so as we move to the latter six months of, of the flood and the latter part of that first six-month period, um, whatever volcanic ash or whatever sulfur dioxide might have been in the, in the water as it was raining down on the flood, on the arc, uh, could have been neutralized by that time. So there's no lack of water to provide uh, water for uh, the people and the animal on board the ark to, to drink uh, or to cool down the penguins that you're making reference to. Let me post an idea to you, Jackson, and see how you okay. would think of it. Uh, one of uh, my friends locally uh, grows deer now this is an axis deer skull that I have here and, and horns and so forth. Um, the white-tailed deer is most common in the southern United States and is the common deer that is hunted. Uh, he has studied, or he collects the DNA from all these different uh, type of deer. But what I want to emphasize are the horns on this thing. Uh, do you think that it would be awkward? For uh, uh, Noah and the seven others, they have to deal with an animal as it might be uh, even a juvenile that would have what are called spikes here as people hunt them, uh, or a full-sized axis deer. Once again, with the size of the ark, I see no problem with an adult deer walking on board the ark with his wife is female, Uh, but again, if we allow uh, God to speak the truth that there are two of each kind, two of each genus, as I've said, he could have brought on board or instructed to go to the ark um, a a deer that were juveniles. Um, As you think about the counter arguments that I've given about the ark being big enough for all these creatures. You think that's a, um, reasonable, uh, idea, Jackson?
1: Well, I think they would be crammed in pretty tight. Uh, but,
2: uh, well, I would sorry. sorry, I, I would immediately disagree with the idea of being crammed in pretty tight. Um, this fellow, uh, John Wood Moripi, uh, uh John Petschkis, have you read his several hundred page book called The Feasibility Study for Noah's Ark?
1: No, I haven't read that. I probably should have. That,
2: that'd be a good book for you to pick up because he points out in there, uh, an actual disagreement with, uh, Dr. Henry Morris regarding several things. Uh, he disagrees with Dr. Morris. For example, Dr. Morris uh, calculated that there might have been as many as a billion people alive at the beginning of the Great Flood. uh, Petkus, uh thought that the number really should be 100 million. But one thing that we might want to discuss uh, when... And do I understand Donnie, we're close to when the audience may ask us questions. How close are we to that time break? You've got about 10 minutes. Okay, uh, maybe we'll discuss that then. Um, one question that, that I want to uh, 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 pose to Jackson is a uh, biological question about the death of animals whether animals or men float or sink. We'll save that for uh, the next round. Jackson, you want to bring an additional item up for me, please?
1: Yes, it's kind of related to that. Uh, Why do we not find uh, trilobites and sea urchins in the same strata, do you think?
2: Okay, let me use my map behind me here uh, as an example. Again, the N... And maybe if you made it full screen, the audience could see it better, uh, Donnie. Uh, The N is Nashville, Tennessee, Chicago, Mississippi River is here. Um, The yellow rocks in this area are post-flood rocks. Some of the rocks up here in Minnesota and so forth are pre-flood rocks. Let's focus for a minute on the pink and the blue Um, the blue rocks uh, are rocks that contain coal measures uh, the coal seams in america the pink near my thumb here contain trilobites and uh, other uh, fossils uh, that are invertebrates. If we imagine the Great Flood occurring as we have been uh, talking about it, uh, my opponent, I think, is overlooking the fact of what's called ecological zonation. As the flood uh, waters rose all over the earth, they would, or the flood waters would bury logically uh, the sea creatures like trilobites that are bottom drillers and so forth and then animals such as dinosaurs and camels and so forth could escape to higher zones uh so there's an aspect of escape but there's also an aspect of these creatures being buried in ecological zonation does that ring true my friend
1: well with uh let's give flying animals uh, an example uh bats birds pterosaurs and uh, so-called feathered dinosaurs like archaeopteryx or confucius or something like that uh why are these all not found in the same layer if they all were able to outfly the flood
2: well i, I guess part of my response there is. Uh, you do find uh, in the Western United States um, fossil graveyards where there are different genera in the same rock type. So I would suggest you don't have your facts completely right because there are cases uh, where uh, several different genera of both uh, aquatic and terrestrial animals are found in the same layer. Donnie, how much time now until the next cycle?
0: Um, If you want, based on what I have here for the time, why don't we get one more question from each of you, one from Jackson, one from Professor McQueen, and then that will uh, take care of the final few minutes we have for the discussion. Then we're going to move into some closing statements.
2: Okay. Uh, Jackson, let me uh, go first here uh, and uh, ask you a question based on one of the arguments you have uh you have brought up um you have argued uh that the right whale uh the modern uh right whale is found only in the atlantic uh i would challenge you to tell me how whales could have evolved in the rock record i'm sorry as evidenced as fossils in the rock record how could um Whales have evolved. Um, Dr. Duane Gish used to make fun of his opponents by suggesting that somehow a cow fell into the water, both male and female, reproduced long enough so that the whale could uh, so that the whale could evolve. Uh, what evidence do you see in the fossil record for whale evolution?
1: I think there are about 48 species from medcadius to uh bacillosaurus so uh, about 20 to 30 species of legged whales you have uh, medcadius at the front about 55.8 million years ago and it goes to pachycetus 50 million years ago uh ambulocetus 48 myocetus i think 45 million years ago you're getting progressively more uh Aquatic as time goes by, then you have animals like uh, Bacillosaurus, obviously, that are uh, even creationists agree are whales, but they don't have uh, very modern whale features. They have a few different types of teeth, whereas modern whales only have one. They have uh, no melon. They have a uh, nostril. Okay, I, no I can
2: see I can see where your argument's going. Uh, yeah, I will talk about that more later. Go ahead and ask your question of me my friend.
1: All right. Sorry. Uh, Let's see. Yeah. How do you account for the history of uh, say Egyptians and ancient Chinese written history going back during the time the flood supposedly took place?
2: Okay. You bring up a very important point and that's the uh, chronology of um, archaeology. What I do is I use this as a basement. As a basis, um, any structure like a the roof of a temple, the Egyptian pyramids, the pyramids in um, the uh, Yucatan Peninsula, any human structure like that, I put as post-flood, because any structure that man made in the time before the flood would have been destroyed by the catastrophe of the flood. So the way that I handle that argument is the Chinese uh, language uh, developed after the time of the Tower of Babel and the Chinese language contains many clues that point back to the Bible, like a very large vessel in uh, Chinese contains the characters boat saved eight lives. Uh, so all of these things date to post-flood time. Uh, I don't accept the fact that the culture in China or in South America uh, matches what Bishop Other, Usher and others uh, considered the date of the flood. I think Usher was right. The modern archaeologist is wrong.
0: Right. Let me jump right. in there um jackson professor mcqueen um that's time for the discussion portion i want to say fantastic discussion very civil and uh sophisticated so many great points discussed and really just a great debate so far an hour and 40 minutes has flown by um so therefore let's do this let's move into the closing statements you both have five minutes and so if there are any uh let's say there's any points that you um you guys feel like you want to address before we move into the audience Q&A, feel free uh, free to take this time to kind of complete your arguments, complete your thoughts, and then we'll get into some audience uh, questions. So uh, Jackson, we're going to hand it to you first, though. You did start us off in this debate with your opening statement. So uh, you have five minutes. Let me just get my timer ready. I apologize. And you're good to go on your first word. I'll start the timer.
1: All right. I probably won't need all the time. I'll just say uh, I enjoyed this debate. Uh, very civil and respectful. Uh, I have respect for David McQueen. And uh, we're actually talking about meeting up sometime. I want to do that. I think that would be a, yeah, be a too. good idea. Yeah, me too. Yeah. And I'm going to give Donnie uh, my uh, mailing address so I can have a copy of your book. Also. I'll be glad
2: to send it to you, my friend.
1: All right. All right. And, uh, yeah, just really... Just, Anything else I said would just be going over my points again. I I just think it's an an allegorical story. I I don't take it for literal. And I think uh, most of the explanations would have to be supernatural for it to make any sense at all. And there's just no naturalistic way for the story to happen. So uh, I'll just leave it at that and uh, turn it over.
0: All right, Uh, Jackson, thank you so much for that five-minute closing statement. Well, as I said, whatever we don't use, we just put into the audience Q&A because as uh, as usual here, we got a lot of great questions and therefore a lot of good discussion to be had. So, Professor McQueen, we're going to hand it over to you and uh, you have five minutes whenever you're ready.
2: Okay. The foundational argument that I've given is that the Bible can be trusted as a historical document and the issues that are at stake and the reason I'm motivated to uh, debate this issue with my opponent can be found in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3. And uh, I'll begin with verse 3 of 2 Peter chapter 3. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? And so in this context, I would argue that my opponent is a scoffer in the sense that he believes that the Bible is allegorical. He would say the same thing about Jesus as he said about the book of Genesis. It's just an allegory. You know, Jesus can teach us about love, but he wasn't the son of God or anything. But listen to this argument. Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. The mistake that uh, my brother is making is that he's uniformitarian and materialistic. He believes that a naturalistic argument that basically the rates we see today or the rates that were there in the past completely overlooks the catastrophic nature of the the great flood. But focusing in on Noah's ark, it completely overlooks God's grace in the covering of that ark. Let me read on. For this they willingly are ignorant of that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water. So this focuses on the creation, a topic for another debate perhaps in the future. According to, whoops, I uh, went too far there, Um, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. And so this talks about the um, millions of humans, the millions of animals that were destroyed Why? Because of the sinfulness of mankind. So we can't lose uh, focus on the fact that the ark is a symbol for the salvation through the Lord Jesus. Um, But I would like the audience to consider this final warning, which is quite serious. Uh, I'm a father of four, grandfather of nine. And so I've seen a lot in my life. Consider this. But the heavens and earth, which are now, by the same word are being kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and the perdition uh, of ungodly men. So God's concern about the sinfulness of mankind in the past is no different than his coming concern that we all have to give an account for what we think. Is it fact? Is it fiction? Is it allegory or is it history? Thank you.
0: All right, I appreciate that uh, closing statement there, Professor McQueen, Uh, Jackson and David, thank you so much for the awesome debate. Uh, This is definitely a must watch. So people in the chat, please make sure you are sharing this around Um, again. David and Jackson, thank you so much for doing this. So that thank being you. said, let's just let's just get right into the questions here then. Looks like we've got a decent mix of questions for the both of you. Uh, as we typically do on this channel, whoever the question is for, we will make sure they get the last word. Let's say the questions for uh, Professor McQueen. We'll give uh, D- David you a, a chance to answer it. Jackson, of course, we can get your thoughts on it as well. And then we would give uh, David the final words. So that being said, let's go right to the first question. And um, this one came in all the way at the beginning from Landon Freeman. This question is for Jackson. He says, uh, Jackson, have you considered that Noah's Ark worked simply because of divine intervention?
1: Uh, yes, I have, but uh, it's really not a good explanation if you're looking for a uh, you know, a scientific answer for it. So, you know, if I was going to believe the story, it would, it would need to, to have some, some ring of naturalism in it, I think.
0: All right, I appreciate that, Jackson. Uh, Professor McQueen, go ahead.
2: Okay, uh, so the issue here is naturalism versus supernatural. And I would recommend to Jackson and also the audience in general, that they go back to uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, well-known book called Miracles of Preliminary Study. In that uh, book, he addresses this issue of uh, naturalism versus supernaturalism. Now, as a, as a scientist, I've been looking at the Bible for 50 years, and I think One of the things that would resolve your concern, Jackson, is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus. In the New Testament, uh, one of Jesus's friends, Lazarus, died while he was away. Uh, His two sisters, Mary and Martha, were so very concerned uh, about the death of their uh, brother that uh, they said, oh, if Jesus had only been here, uh, he would have been Uh, he would have been saved by by Jesus. He wouldn't have died. Well, when Jesus finally got there, he uh, uh, had them uh, roll away the stone. That was something that the humans could do. And then Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. Now, what's interesting about that? If he'd just say, all the dead come forth, then, as God, all the dead around the world would have come forth, but he had to speak Lazarus' name. But when Lazarus came out, he then turned to the humans there, his friends, and said, I've done what only I can do. Now, you do what you can do. And his sisters and others unwrapped the body, and Lazarus lived. Now, he died in the future, uh, but he did. He was resurrected on that day. How does that tie into this argument? It ties in in this way. Um, God had to make sure that the ark didn't float over the top of a volcano, sub, sub, subaqueous volcano as it erupted. So God did his part. But the details we've gone over, that are covered in uh, Genesis 6, 7, and 8, of what Noah did do, building it a certain dimension, waterproofing it, that was something that man could do. So I think that the mix of naturalism and supernaturalism that you're looking for, Jackson, can be found in the Bible.
0: I appreciate that response, uh, Professor McQueen. Uh, Jackson, the question was for you, so go ahead, uh, you get the final word.
1: I don't really have anything to add. We can uh, go to the next one.
0: All right. I appreciate it, gentlemen. So this next one comes in from Ryan, the Raptor guy. I appreciate the question, Ryan. He says, question for Jackson. Question is how do you account for Marine fossils found all over the continents, not just mountains without a global flood?
1: Well, again, I think, uh, Different parts of the world have been underwater at different times. Uh, I think that's evidence uh, through geology. But pretty much every place on earth has been flooded at one time, not necessarily the same time. So that would be my explanation.
0: All right. I appreciate it. And uh, Professor McQueen will hand it over to you.
2: Okay. My counter argument, uh, I'll put underneath the idea of naturalism versus supernaturalism. And This is one of my uh, worries about misunderstandings that people have about fossils being found uh, all over the continent and so forth. Um, As many of you have seen me do before, if this is a mountain, and I've drawn a tree there to one side, to show you that this is a cross section a lot of people have the false idea that as the floodwaters receded the fossils indicated by the f there are kind of stuck on the side of mountains but rather let me draw this in better here it turns out if you go to a place like everest and other places the the fossils that almost looks like a the letter e so let me mark that out The the fossils are found in the rock strata. Many geologists use exactly the argument that Jackson gave, that there have been so many regional and local floods that we can explain these fossils being all over the earth and all over every continent. Um, If you look again at the map behind me, the kinds of uh, marine fossils, that are fa- found in the blue area going from chicago all the way down to nashville are found in rock rock units so it's a clear evidence that uh tsunami-like uh waves brought uh marine animals all
0: over the continents okay donnie back to you thank you for that uh response there uh, david uh jackson if you would like a final quick word, go ahead.
1: Well, we still have the problem of uh, why is not one dinosaur fossil found with uh, say an Australopithecine or vice versa? You know, why is a pterodactyl not found next to a, a modern bird? I, I would think it would turn up once in this mix of uh, plate tectonics and global flood but it hasn't yet. Maybe someday, but I I doubt it.
0: All right. I appreciate uh, the question from Ryan and the uh, engagement and responses from both David and Jackson. So let's move on here. We've got a question from Shelly. Shelly, I appreciate the question. So again, a question is for you, Jackson. I appreciate you being a good sport, Jackson. As a matter of fact, it looks like most questions are for you. So uh, the question is, is it contradictory to believe that the present is the key to the past, yet animals that exist today were primitive eukaryotes going back far enough in time?
1: Well, let me see if I understand the question. Uh, We can kind of see back in time through fossils and genetics so, if I'm understanding the question, that's uh, kind of my answer. Okay,
0: okay.
2: Uh, let's start with the fossils. As a geologist, I've studied these for 50 years. I'll leave the genetic issue to, uh, to others. But let's look at the fossils and uh, dissect one of uh, Jackson's concerns. He looks at the fossil record and he says, okay, if you flood geologists are accurate, uh, how come we don't find a a dinosaur in the same layer that we find, uh, for example, a dog? So once again, I need to draw on here my tree, which indicates that this is a stratigraphic unit out in the Western United States. Um, I have uh, hiked the Grand Canyon um, five times in four years when I was at ICR. And I've looked and sure enough, uh, the trilobites at the base of the canyon are not mixed in with the reptile amphibian uh, footprints uh, at the top of the canyon. Uh, there are two explanations I would give to uh, Jackson for the fact that you don't find dinosaurs and dogs in the same unit. Uh, a dinosaur, even though some would disagree with me, is kind of like a Louisiana alligator. I don't choose to live near where the dinosaurs are. So my family dog, which has been domesticated as far as we can have in recorded history and probably was true in the pre-flood world. My family dog is not going to be around the, uh, dinosaur. And so again, the argument is basically an argument of ecological zonation. We don't find, um, uh, a pterosaur, uh, and a modern bird in the same um, uh, unit. Um, the birds um, and the pterosaurs, for that matter, both breathed air. So two of each of those kinds were on board the uh, in the ark and lived in the post-flood time. But the birds and the pterosaurs that were alive before the flood uh, would have been uh, killed uh, for a number of reasons. Let me give you an example of one. Uh, a bird, uh, like a robin or a uh, cardinal, for example, uh, would be flying around and as the floodwaters fell, the first 40 days of the, the Great Flood, uh, the windows of heaven were open. They would have been knocked down into the uh, ocean and had would have been eaten by the marine uh, creatures that were out uh, in the ocean, plesiosaurs, creatures like that, but not just that, but uh, uh, other uh, animals such as sharks that uh, uh, are carnivores. And so that is how I would expand on uh, that argument
0: on why you would not find them together. I appreciate that response, Professor McQueen. Uh, great questions that are, that are coming in. Uh, Jackson, that was a question originally for you, if you'd like a uh, final word on that.
1: Yeah, he, he points out kind of a problem with ecological zonation. He mentioned that trilobites are on this level in the Grand Canyon, and then you have reptiles and amphibians up here but they're on top of each other. So they were, one was wiped out and then it dried out. And then another one came in and was wiped out. Uh, that doesn't track to me.
0: All right. Well, moving on. I appreciate that, Jackson. We've got a super chat. So I want to get these super chat questions in uh, jungle jargon. I appreciate the support and the, So he says hard question, uh, not uh, specifying anybody. So we'll just uh, consider it a question for the both of you. Uh, We'll give you both an opportunity to answer this, then we'll move on. So Jungle Jargon's question is, why are there, and I've got it up on screen, why are there matching fossils between continents, living animals between continents and glacial markings going south to north in India? Um, whoever would like to start Jackson would you would you like to start
1: yeah I'll start I think because uh, the continents were connected long ago and it allows animals to walk back and forth from what was South America and Africa which were at the time one just one example so that would be why fossils are found on both now of the same basic animal Thank okay you,
0: Jackson go ahead Professor McQueen
2: I'll uh, I'll go ahead now I'm putting a north arrow on here to show uh, South America and Africa if I can draw the letter F there so there's South America and Africa on my uh, diagram there and uh, we have found a point of agreement between Jackson and me I believe that the Bible, Uh, indicates there was one world continent. Now, that continent, if you put it together, uh, had a a basic uh, C-shaped, and again, this is uh, north, uh, a basic uh, shape of the letter C, if you were to look at it from space. But uh, when that began to break up. When that one world continent began to break up, there were uh, catastrophically, there were units laid down that contain these fossils that are asked about. And these uh, rock units, which I'll put an X here, uh, if you put the continents back together, if you put the um, uh, South America and Africa back uh, together, they do match up along those dotted lines when you put them back together. Now, obviously, they're separated now by the South Atlantic Ocean, but uh, I think catastrophic flood geology provides a better explanation for um, uh, the presence of those Uh, fossils on the two continents. The issue of glacial markings on bedrock in India is a topic more complicated than we have time tonight to talk, so I'm going to defer on that.
0: I appreciate the responses from the both of you, and I appreciate the great question and super chat from Jungle Jargon. So the next question here comes in from Um, let me see. It's a, it's a super chat. So I'll put it up on screen. Oops. Here we go. Alec Cox. Again, I appreciate it. Thank you so much for the support, Alec. Uh, He says to Jackson, what are two best evidences for evolution fish to man in brackets that we are still observing and not some past theory based on a rock finding?
1: Oh morphology and genetics, I would say. And that's okay.
2: If he doesn't want to elaborate on that, I'll elaborate on that. Um, so your two your two points, one of which is the argument based on morphology, and by that I figure you're talking about homologies between a bird's arm and a man's arm is that what you're talking about or am Not I necessarily reading
1: homology it? but uh, similarities between like primates and other animals and that, that sort of thing
2: oh okay okay that is something I can uh, speak to morphology and let's use DNA as an example. So my counter argument to that is when you look at the modern world, you certainly cannot see any evidence of evolution occurring now. Now I have to put a caveat there. I'm not talking about at the species level. I'm not talking about one being able to um, look at a certain type of bacteria observe it as it goes through a thousand generations and see that there's no change at all. Often there are mutations that occur that cause that bacteria to look uh, different. What I'm talking about is all the work that's been done by both the evolutionary community and also the creationist community on the issue of DNA. You can go to ICR's website and you'll find some remarkable arguments there, and also if you go back to some of the talks that Donnie has given since Christmas of last year, you'll find that the similarities between something like a, uh, a gibbon or a chimp or other primates and man is not nearly as close as the evolutionary community has reported. And even if it is the case, uh, and I know this is not true, I'm going to use it for the sake of the debate. Let's say there's only 1% difference between a chimp and a human. We have to ask ourselves, is there junk DNA in that human uh, DNA? The answer I've gotten from Donnie and other biologists is that no. What appears superficially to be junk DNA to explain something about the morphology of uh, apes versus humans um, is not really junk DNA at all. There's more
0: data, there's more information stored than we give credit to. Thank you. uh, Professor McQueen and Jackson, did you want a final word
1: on that one? Yes, uh, we are one to 2% different from chimpanzees in the sense that uh, the regions that code for proteins in our DNA are identical. I just wanted to add that.
0: No problem. No problem. Okay. As we wind down with the last couple questions here, because we did just hit the two hour mark and I want to respect the time of our debaters tonight. So this one comes in from Wesley Coleman. I appreciate the question, Wesley. He says, um, Ro. So uh, I'm guessing it's for you, Jackson. He says, delicately preserved fossils Polystrate trees, sand injectites, and warped strata are all signs that these layers were laid down quickly. Is this not physical evidence?
1: Well, delicately preserved fossils can be formed in many ways. Uh, mud slide, falling to the bottom of an anaerobic bog and being preserved that way. Uh, polystrate trees, they typically happen in uh, like fossil river deltas so they are a catastrophically formed uh, thing, most of the time, probably straight trees, but uh, you'll notice there's never like a, 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 it's never going through the Triassic and the Jurassic, what they're they're define, defining as that. It's always in one layer of strata, technically, not not uh, multiple layers. As for uh, warped strata, I don't know much about sand injectites, so I'll just go to warped strata uh, when the the rock is still hot and deep under the earth that can warp and bend there and then be pushed up over time and give you that appearance so uh, that's my answer
0: thank you Jackson and we'll hand it over to you professor McQueen
2: okay my counter argument to that and Jackson you and I'll have to meet in middle Tennessee sometime in the future along I-40 and I can take you to a place where uh, there's a you standing there beside this polystrate tree that goes through some cold measures. And there's a tree at the top to illustrate that it's a cross section. Um, the argument that um, I was presented and perhaps you've been tricked by is um, My professors would say, oh, that's not a big deal. These coal-measure peat bogs, they slowly formed over time. And so when I saw this with my own eyes in the past, I said, wait, wait, what are you saying? Um, uh, Could this have formed uh, through slow processes? The answer is no. It had to be a catastrophic formation. Now, I congratulate Jackson because he mentioned that even in his context, this has to be a local catastrophic event. John Mackay and others have found these kind of uh, uh, trees uh, in Australia, in Europe, in America. And so my challenge to Jackson is if you begin to go worldwide and find evidence of what even you consider to be local catastrophic events, how can you argue, argue against a worldwide catastrophic event that lasted
0: 12 months. Thank you for that response. Uh, David and Jackson, did you want a uh, final word on that one?
1: Uh, Sure. Uh, Well, I think catastrophic local events happen all over the world all the time. We we see that even today. Uh, I just don't see the evidence that one is responsible for all of this uh, 4,400 years ago
0: okay i appreciate that uh, david and jackson so this um this question here comes in from richard madsen i appreciate the question richard this one's uh for you professor mcqueen so he uh, actually it looks like it might be for the both of you um so he says if i divide seven by two a male and it's female referring to the uh, noah's ark story he says i get three and a half females and three and a half males Um, so he's asking, were there 14 of the clean animals? (laughs) Let me, let me start on that to show the
2: ridiculousness of that, uh, argument. Um, again, let's go back to the data that we have, uh, in scripture and let's look at, uh, that, uh, uh, very, uh, thing, um, or, uh, or rather, let's find that exact passage that uh, he, was, uh, he is talking about there. Uh, this is found in Genesis chapter 7, and I'll read the first uh, three verses. And the Lord said unto Noah, Come thou and all thy house into the ark, for thee have I found righteous before me in this generation. And again, the issue of sin and righteousness comes to the forefront. But let's focus on the sevens and the ridiculous argument that this individual made. Of every clean beast, thou shalt take to thee by sevens, the male and female, and of the beasts that are not clean, by two, male and female. Of fowls of the air, by sevens, the male and female, to keep seed alive upon the face of the earth. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, it gives you the basis for this understanding, the seven. Of course, it was two pairs, male and female, male and female. So there were um, three females, three males, and then the seventh of the beast was a male and the seventh of the birds was a male. Because God always provides a provision for people that don't have much money. And so throughout the Old Testament, an appropriate sacrifice for someone with not much money would be a bird. And if you got more resources, it would have been a beast like a, a bull. If you read the complete story and go from Genesis 6, 7, 8 to chapter 9 and chapter 10, You'll find that when Noah got off the ark, what did he do? He sacrificed an animal to the Lord. And so that's where that seventh one came in. The uh, clean animals and the clean birds, for that matter, could have been barbecued on board the ark so long as he didn't take the last two. So you see the way it works out. Uh, two of each Brahma bull are, are saved to get off the ark, but the others are uh, eaten by barbecue or barbecued. That's what I would do. Uh, <laughs> barbecued each uh, Friday night. I hope I didn't
0: add ridiculous to ridiculous. So that's my point. <laughs> no, I appreciate the. Uh, I appreciate the response. Uh, thank you, Professor McQueen uh, Jackson. Did you want to add anything to that at all?
1: Uh, no, I don't think I have anything to add.
0: All right. Well, I appreciate that. Uh, we are coming at the two hour and 15 minute mark. That was a great audience Q&A, a great debate. Um, so I really appreciate it. Time has flown by. Jackson, Professor McQueen, fantastic job. Uh, before we do shut it down and call it a night, though, I want to give you uh, both the opportunity to uh, you know, give some final thoughts, some final words. Uh, why don't we start with uh, you, Jackson? Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much yeah, for doing this. You um final
1: thoughts final words uh i'll just kind of repeat what i said in the opening statement or the closing statement uh the uh it was a respectful debate and i respect david mcqueen and uh you know i don't know who won or lost i i don't i don't think anyone really knows it's kind of subjective but uh you know i just i enjoyed it either way so I'll, I'll give it over to David.
2: And once again, I wanted to compliment you. And as soon as you send your address to Donnie, and then he uh, communicates it to me, I'll be sending you an autographed and inscribed copy of my book to say, thank you. But not yeah, like only that. to say thank you, but uh, the argument that I give in the book about how minerals are an example of God's creative design might uh, be of interest to you. As yeah, I said, earlier, you. thank you. As I said earlier, uh, Jackson and I both have things to work on. I'm going to go to my salamander, salamander expert buddy and check a couple of things that uh, Jackson has brought up. And I hope that he will uh, think through the following uh, argument. I think it's a very Uh, important issue uh, to think through what the building of the ark means. Um, We have in the Bible enough data to show that this ark was not a little bit tiny boat with giraffes sticking their necks out, that this was a floating barge with adequate room for food, water, waste, uh, even the humidity issue that he's brought up. Secondly, not only is there data in the Bible, but I'll point out that there's data in, uh, in history that Marco Polo, a number of people in the years since the flood have seen Noah's Ark, including, um, observations during World War II, uh, by, uh, United States, uh, aviators, um, It's a legitimate area of research. How come we can't find these photographs? Well, there's uh, quite a number of books that have been written. One is by Tim LaHaye and John Morris, dealing with the ark. Another one by a fellow named Richard Bright about the ark that you can study this out more. The final point I wanna make is the spiritual side of it. Uh, The head of the National Geographic Society years ago, when asked what would be the most amazing archaeological discovery of the 20th century. He said, if we could find Noah's Ark uh, above 14,000 feet on a volcanic uh, peak in eastern Turkey, that would confirm the Bible, uh, the biblical story, and would confirm the historicity of the Bible. And so, Wouldn't that be an amazing thing that between now, Jackson, and our next debate uh, in the new year, that that could be
0: found by one's exploring? Thank you to both of you. I appreciate those final words, uh, Professor McQueen and Jackson. We've got a lot of compliments, a lot of great feedback in the chat. We've had a great chat Uh, All night, we had over uh, 70 people at one point enjoying this awesome, awesome debate. So again, uh, Professor McQueen, Jackson, thank you so much for being generous with you. Donnie, I want you to know I'm going to
2: go ahead and X myself out. Uh, Jackson, I'm going to go out to the local stream and turn over some rocks, see if I can find those salamanders you were talking (laughs) about. Uh, So I'm going to leave the room and leave it to you two. Thank you,
0: gentlemen. Oh, good time God to bless you. Professor McQueen. God bless Jackson. God bless everybody in the chat. Thank you for being here. Uh, if you're not yet subscribed and you love debates, discussions, and lectures, please make sure to hit that subscribe button because if you go check the events section, we've got a ton of fun for everybody over the uh, course of the next few months. So that being said, again, thank you so much, Jackson. Thank you, uh, David. And uh, thank, thank you. you to the audience. Thank you for all the support and uh, super chat, super stickers and great questions. Uh, God bless. Standing for Truth is out.